developers can build networked applications today without having to deploy their code to a server. These serverless applications are constructed from managed services and functions as a service. Managed services are cloud offerings like database as a service, queuing as a service, or search as a service. These managed services are easy to use. They take care of operational burdens like scalability and outages. But managed services typically solve a narrow use case. You can't build an application entirely out of managed services. Managed services are scalable and narrow. Functions as a service are scalable and flexible. With managed services, you can make remote calls to a service with a well-defined API. With functions as a service, you can deploy your own code. But functions as a service execute against transient, unreliable compute resources. They aren't a good fit for low-latency computation, and the code that you run on them should be stateless. Managed services and functions as a service are the perfect complements. Managed services provide you with a well-defined server abstraction that every application will need, like a database or a search index or a queue. We all need those for building our back-end applications. Functions as a service offer flexible glue code that you can use to create custom interactions between the managed services. The term serverless is used to describe the applications that are built entirely with managed services and functions as a service. Serverless applications are dramatically simpler to build and easier to operate than cloud applications of the past. The cost of managed services can get expensive, but the cost of functions as a service can cost one-tenth of what it might take to run a server that is handling your requests. Whether the size of your bill will increase or decrease as your company becomes serverless is less of an issue than the fact that your company will have more productive employees. Serverless applications have less operational burden, so developers spend more time architecting and implementing software. It's been five years since the Netflix infrastructure team was talking about the aspirational goal of a no-ops software culture. This no-ops desire was about your software being so well-defined that you would not have to have regular intervention of your operational staff to reboot your servers and reconfigure your load balancers. Serverless is a newer way of moving operational expense into capital expense. It moves us closer to this idea of no-ops. Today's guest, Randall Hunt, is a senior technical evangelist with Amazon Web Services. He travels around the world meeting developers and speaking at conferences about AWS Lambda, the function-as-a-service platform from Amazon. Randall has given some excellent talks about how to architect and build serverless applications, which are in the show notes, and today we're going to explore those application patterns further. Randall Hunt is a senior technical evangelist at Amazon Web Services. Randall, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. So I want to start by discussing a use case of AWS Lambda, because we've been talking about serverless a lot on the podcast recently, and one show we had was with a guy named Yan Chui, and he was on the show to discuss the refactoring of infrastructure at a company that he was working at called Yubble. 
And the situation was that the social network that he was working at had extremely bursty traffic workloads. It was a social media site, and for most of the day there was very little traffic, but occasionally there would be a social media star that would log on to the site, and then a ton of users would come online to hang out with this social media star, and the burstiness created really big problems because he was in a situation where most of the day, okay, they only need one or two servers, but occasionally they need this massive amount of server workload quantity. And uh, this turns out to be quite a common problem. So you're an evangelist. You talk to lots of different clients. What are the kinds of bursty workloads that you see customers dealing with? So I guess that's kind of a, the, the situation you're describing is basically the hot shard problem, but applied in a traffic sense rather than a data sense where, you know, Kim Kardashian or Justin Bieber's tweets are way more popular and need to go to way more users than someone else's. And I see that pretty often, but there are a bunch of different ways you can design around it sort of architecturally. But with regard to AWS Lambda and kind of serverless applications, I think the best way to design around that is figure out what capacity that you need to be at and you can kind of set canaries in CloudWatch or otherwise to keep those containers warm and running. But then the other advantage of Lambda is, let's say 90% of the time, that capacity isn't needed. So, you know, the, the promise of the cloud, all that nonsense. Sorry, it's not really nonsense. It's just me being funny. But the, the, the promise of the cloud is this elasticity thing where you can go in and you can say, I want a million servers for five minutes, and then I don't want to be charged anything else afterwards. So you really can kind of go out and ask for hundreds of thousands of invocations per second, and then go immediately back down to a thousand invocations per second. The reason I'm starting the conversation with this discussion of the bursty workload is I think it exemplifies some of the virtues of the serverless architecture as defined by an architecture that uses a function as a service uh, on-demand compute. And regardless of that, people have been dealing with bursty traffic events for a long period of time. And just to, to give an idea for how the Lambda-type architecture makes things a little better, what are the other ways that we could handle bursty traffic? Like, using auto-scaling groups or load balancers, the traditional way that we've been handling bursty workloads for the last 10 years, what are the the ways that that works and, and what are the disadvantages of those approaches? So bursty workloads for the past 10 years, I think 10 years ago it was a very different story. Even five years ago it was a very different story. Auto-scaling groups were were introduced probably six or seven years ago now. And... Essentially, yeah, you would set up your auto-scaling group and it would be measuring some kind of check. And typically that was an instance-level check. Uh, eventually it was able to be kind of a, a business-level metric or, or uh, an application-level check that you were doing that would tell you whether or not you needed to be adding more instances to your, your pool of things that are answering this. Then you had a load balancer, and the, in this case ELB. And ELB would, elastic load balancer, would also be performing various checks and making sure that everything was running as it needed to be. And from time to time, you know, you'd still run into issues, right? You might 
have a poorly, you may only be requesting instances of a certain type, in which case there's not enough capacity for that type. So then we introduce spot fleet and spot fleet will, allows you to say, I want anything that will give me this amount of capacity at an instance level. But then you can go even further. You can go to ECS and ECS says, I have this task that I need to accomplish and I need this amount of compute and this amount of memory and this amount of network. I don't care where it runs or how it runs. Just give me that much stuff. And then you can go even further. Oh, oh and the, the other advantage kind of that we recently added, I guess, would, would be per minute billing. So previously, if you were bringing instances up and down, uh, you would be charged a full hour for each of those instances. That wasn't a, a spot instance where the spot market, by the way, is just this kind of, um, it, it's like the the a price that's determined and fluctuates based on the availability instances. So you can get like 90% off what the on-demand instance cost would be from the spot market. But going back to, to my point of previously, you would be charged for a full hour. Every time one of these instances came up and every time you went down within that hour, you'd be charged the full hour. But now we charge per second. So you can bring an instance up for, for two minutes and five seconds and you'll be charged only for those two minutes and five seconds. Uh, and then you can scale back down. But then with ECS, you know, you can you can kind of granularize the stuff that you're getting. And it's kind of this continuum. So as you move forward on that continuum from EC2 to ECS and then to Lambda, you get into this very small deployable unit, which is just, hey, here's my code. And I want to run my code without having to deal with any networking or compute or anything else. The only dial that I have to figure out is my RAM my storage, my, my memory. And then I, I just, you know, turn that up to 11, get my 1.5 gigs of RAM, run my code, and everything else is kind of managed for me. So the, the deployable unit gets much smaller and the level of stuff that I have to worry about in order to scale also gets much smaller. Mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of people have gone from a, a monolithic type of application that's deployed on a VM to breaking their monolithic application into you know, services that they deploy onto containers and then deploying those containers onto Kubernetes or Amazon Elastic Container Service, that's ECS that you described, or Mesosphere or whatever management platform of their services they want to use. What does that re-architecture typically look like when people want to go from a containerized architecture to a place where they can move some of those some of that container functionality to functions as a service. So this is the the methodology that I used. This is sort of what we used at SpaceX, and, and this is kind of the the method that's worked for me. I'm not saying it's the perfect method for, for all situations, but what I do is I like the idea of the Lambda monolith. So you basically take whatever working application you have and you move it into API Gateway and Lambda. Uh, and this is, this is for web applications. Other applications might, might benefit from kind of a different approach. But for web applications, you take your, your Flask app or your Django app or whatever, and you move it into Lambda and API Gateway. And you can deploy these things with something like Chalice or Zappa or or a bunch of other, you know, the serverless framework. There, there are a bunch of different community-run and based frameworks that are really good for deploying all this stuff. Or even SAMS, the serverless application model, which is just a uh, cloud formation transform. 
I realize I'm throwing out a lot of vocab here, but I can kind of recap later. <laughs> but the way that I do it is I take this big old hunk of code and I throw it into one Lambda function. Then, inevitably, something goes wrong. And when that something goes wrong, that's my first foray into microservices. So I start decoupling components of my architecture over time. Because in most of the situations that I'm in, it is more important to get it working than to get it perfect. Now, if you have the luxury of time, I would strongly recommend actually taking a step back, looking at your architecture, looking at the components that are available to you, and restructuring the entire application to take advantage of Lambda. Because what I'm describing, this Lambda monolith, is not going to take full advantage of all of the different components of Lambda and API Gateway. It's, in fact, pretty limiting, but it is a way to get started very quickly, and it's something that I see a lot of customers doing. Can you talk more about that example of migrating when you were at SpaceX? I think that would be a pretty interesting case study if you can run through a little bit more of what exactly you were refactoring. Yep, can't talk about it. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> That's fine, all right. Sorry. Well, that's that's all right. You know, I've, adds to the mystery of SpaceX, I suppose. But if okay, if we let's contrast those two architectural approaches we could take, where we've got we're up against time and we want to migrate to serverless as quickly as possible, and we just throw our monolith, our entire monolith, onto a functions as a service platform, and then you know, we see what breaks and then whatever breaks, we decide to refactor that breakage into more functions as a service. That's certainly one strategy. The more prudent strategy is take a step back, draw out your UML perhaps, and figure out which of these different components we should break into which services and which of these components perhaps maybe we should move into a managed service. Maybe there's some, some you know, some of these parts of our application could be moved into some some managed service that would be easier for us to, to work with. What kinds of applications have you seen broken in that more prudent, measured fashion? Is there a case study that you can talk about that uh, would help to illustrate that more measured approach? So I'll, I'll highlight a couple different use cases here. So you have real-time file processing, which is what the Seattle Times uses. So let's say a photograph is taken, it gets uploaded to an S3 bucket, and a Lambda event's triggered, that Lambda runs, and it resizes all the images and optimizes them for various platforms. And uh, the New York Times also does a lot of similar components beyond just photographs. They have kind of this idea of event streams that they are processing, and that's really cool. That's built on top of uh, Kafka instead of uh, Kinesis, but somebody that uses Kinesis and Lambda is Localytics. So Localytics, they process like billions and billions of, of data points in, in real time, and they use Lambda to process both their historical data and their live data. So the stuff coming in over a Kinesis stream, which is this like live event stream, they're able to go through and generate metrics from this data, do indexing, social media analysis, and like cleaning up the data and all that fun stuff. And then you kind of have ETL customers too. So Zillow, they use Lambda and Kinesis to, to track a, a bunch of different mobile metrics in real time, like clickstream type of data. And then with Kinesis and Lambda, they can go back and 
put things into Redshift, which is a, a data warehousing solution, or even perform their analytics right there and, and immediately serve them to the people asking the questions. And that took them, you know, the, the interesting part of that particular use case is that it only took them about two weeks to deploy it. So to go from, hey, we want to build this to let's to deploy it and in production only took them about two weeks, which I thought was really cool. Then when it comes to kind of backends, like the web application backend, I mean, they're, they're probably, I don't want to say millions, but there are thousands upon thousands of different customers and use cases uh, for the web backend situation. The one that really stands out to me is A-Cloud Guru. So they're a AWS training website, but not just AWS. They're, they're a cloud training website where they serve courses and videos and I think little quizzes and stuff as well. And they're entirely serverless. So they talk about what it costs for them to run their entire application serverlessly. Uh, and they, they built it serverless from scratch, which I thought was, you know, that's different from the typical migration scenario that you hear about. So they're truly kind of born serverless. And they talk about their architecture from time to time in various places. And you can probably look up one of their talks on YouTube. It's, it's worth checking out. I am beginning to see the contours of a what you might call a typical architecture for serverless applications. I talked to your colleague Danilo Pocha a while ago, and uh, he he outlaid the something similar. And basically, the the commonality that I see is you've got some kind of uh, queue of events that is your 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 queue of changes that are going on across your infrastructure, and you have event handlers that are reading from that event queue and making changes to your stateful infrastructure. So, you know, you might have, maybe you have a, a DynamoDB instance that does one thing, you've got Redis doing another thing, you've got Elasticsearch doing another thing, and you just have these little services that publish events to the, you know, your Kinesis stream or your Kafka stream of events, and then you have... Uh, you know, other other event handlers, other, you know, function as a service event handlers that are reading from the Kinesis stream and are communicating with your data stores and are updating the data stores. And, and this event handling is a really useful thing to put into Lambda functions because the, you know, going back to the burstiness, if you talk, if you're just thinking of, of, the event handlers as the changes that are going on across your architecture, well, that's going to be a bursty kind of workload. You know, you're going to have different different times of day. You're going to have different rates of change uh, appearing in your application. And being able to think about the rate of change as the thing that is uh, scaling variably with the the functions of service, that seems to to make sense. Are, are most of the, the people that you're talking to are they doing something where they have this event stream where they're putting it on Kafka or Kinesis or whatnot? No, I, I would actually say, you know, that's a huge portion, but hmm. it, it I wouldn't say it's a quarter. Or okay, all right. It, I mean, it's, it's really all over the place. So there are two different APIs for invoking Lambda. There's invoke and then there's invoke async. So invoke async is kind of this idea of, I don't care about the answer. I just want you to perform an action on this payload that I'm sending you. And invoke is, hey, I want to, it's the request response model. I, I have a request and I need this function to fire and give me a response, preferably quickly. 
And those two APIs uh, alone enable pretty vast swath of different applications. So people always ask me for different use cases, and my mind kind of goes wild because there are so many different use cases. I mean, one of the use cases that I, I built was just for communicating with my parents. So I, I travel a lot for work, and I check in on Foursquare. So I, I'll, I'll basically pull the Foursquare API every five minutes, pull down my location, throw that into Dynamo. And then whenever somebody texts me, calls me, anything, I invoke a Lambda function that responds with my current location. And that single Lambda function is responsible for reducing the amount of you know communication that I have to do, primarily with family members, tremendously. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting. I, I guess maybe I get over-indexed on the you know, when I talk to like these big companies that have had to scale and I guess, you know, once you hit a certain scale, scale, you want to do something where you have this event sourcing model, but you know, you're describing a world where there's obviously a lot smaller scale applications that don't need an event sourcing model. You know, you just want, uh, you just want your application. You, you know, you have a, a, a small set of functionality, like calling your parents in response to a certain event and you don't really need a event buffer to handle that kind of thing right and i mean lambda kind of have has its own built-in event buffer so you know requests can get throttled and stuff like that but even alexa skills so alexa you know you can ask a question hey alexa what's the weather and alexa will, will theoretically fire off a lambda function that goes looks up the weather and returns back the response and you don't need a lot of other complex architecture for that. Maybe the backend that Lambda is hitting to get that weather information is drastically complex. So there, there are a couple different layers. You know, there's the, the invocation model, which is interesting to me. The design of it and the, the interaction with it is, is pretty cool. And then there's the backend model, which is or in, even, even beyond the backend model is kind of the data processing model. And Lambda plays a point at all different parts of that architecture. It's kind of the glue that holds all of your services together. Hmm. Are there any applications where people have come to you and they've said, hey, here's what our current application model is. How do we move to a serverless architecture where you really had to stretch your imagination to figure out how to refactor it? Well, there's some things that don't easily lend themselves to a serverless model. So it's not like, everything has to be serverless. Maybe one day that'll be the case, but I think right now, you know, I'm not going to try and... If somebody has an application that doesn't lend itself to a serverless model, I, I'm not going to try and sell them on it. But yes, I, I've had people come to me with, with stuff that was pretty data-heavy, and you know, I, I don't want to sell people on this myth that Lambda can instantly scale from zero to a billion invocations. It, it does take a, a little bit of time to go from zero to a billion, not a lot. And, you know, there are limits that are in place primarily to protect the user. I think the limit right now is 1,000 simultaneous invocations. So, you know, that's a soft limit. And if you, if you open a request, you can get that limit raised. But it's a lot closer to this idea of instantaneous scaling, but there's still edges in places. And sometimes those edges can be a deal breaker for certain situations. So, you know, FINRA uses 
Lambda pretty extensively to, to look at like billions and billions of trades, but they're not doing it in real time or, or their, their response isn't necessary in real time in order to make a financial decision. Whereas, you know, let's say you were a high frequency trader and you wanted to invoke Lambda and get a response that, you know, say Lambda was going to run this proposed trade against a model that you had stored in S3 and you wanted to like load it from S3 and continuously update that model with each trade, all this other stuff. I think you'd be much better served by ECS in that case just because of the latency and also the the intensity of the work. So, you know, GPUs and things where you need a significant amount of compute that will last beyond the, the five-minute limit of Lambda, th- those are places where you you kind of run into those edges of Lambda. And the subset of customers that I deal with that have that is actually pretty small. I think the gross majority of, of the people that I talk to on a day-to-day basis can benefit from a serverless architecture, but that doesn't mean it's going to be the right thing for everybody. Yeah. So you're talking about applications where state management or over a long period of time is is relevant and so this idea of or that or you might need a specific hardware type of hardware you know a, maybe a gpu is going to handle your job a lot better than some random cpu and i think i think with with lambda you can't specify what kind of processor it's running on is that right Cannot. So okay. basically, the more RAM that you provision, the more CPU you'll get as well. And I think we make some guarantees about maybe like not not literally what instruction set, but at least the generation of processor. Like I think we make some guarantee about the minimum generation of processor, but I'm not sure on that. Mm. Actually, my colleague Chris Munns would be the right person to talk to about that one. Hmm. Okay. Well, maybe that's another conversation I can I can have sometime. Why don't you help? clarify for people like why is state management like given the constraints of building a function as a service platform why is state management difficult and and maybe what are some of the problems that exist today that will be solved in the future or hopefully will be solved in the future so a lot of state management can be solved currently with step functions which is another kind of lambda focused service so you you can basically have a JSON document that defines state transitions and inputs and outputs from various functions, and you can have wait conditions and all the, all that good stuff. It's, it's kind of like a workflow or a state machine for Lambda. So I think that makes a lot of the state management easier. But if you are trying to maintain some sort of external state that requires either an intense compute job or a very long-running process that's maybe training a model or something, that's definitely not the right use case for Lambda just because there's limits put on how long functions can execute and, and also how many resources they can use, whereas it is advantageous when... Take the model training instance, for example. It's advantageous for you to get that model trained as quickly as possible, and you don't care if you use millions of resources because they're only going to be around for as long as it takes to train the model. And, and maybe, you, you know, there's a cost function for you where you can go in and you can say, I'm willing to spend this much money to have this model ready in this amount of time. And with Lambda, th- there's no way to kind of coordinate that that gigantic piece of state, that gigantic set of matrices. You can kind of invoke a Lambda, go out to S3 and say, hey, download this, this file because you get, I, I think it's like 500 megs of, of temp space in Lambda. But 
even then it's you know downloading 500 megs modifying it shipping 500 megs off again that's not the right model you want shared memory and and stuff like that in order to be able to to accomplish those sort of goals faster so so when people are trying to build state into their serverless applications are they typically using these step function handlers or are they using something like redis how what are the different ways to manage state in an in a serverless application i think a lot of people just talk right back out to rds so DynamoDB is kind of the the really easy, straightforward way of managing various states. That's what I think almost everybody uses. If you're just talking about state like an API limit or a a read limit or something like that, most of that can be handled with an API gateway itself. If it's uh, another kind of limit, like you're only allowed to invoke this endpoint this many times before I start to cut you off, then yes, I've seen Redis used a lot for that. And you can run... Redis in a in in your VPC, and you can run your Lambda functions in a VPC. So everything kind of sits tightly together and can talk very quickly and stuff. And then the other side of things is just you know if you're talking about CRUD type apps like create, update, and destroy, delete, you can very easily go right out back to a relational database. Like there's there's nothing preventing you from from making those sorts of updates and even long running transactions, not, you know, not huge long running transactions, but, but transactions that last, you know, a minute, you can still complete those and run those within Lambda. You're not limited in that way. So that's what, where I see most people managing state. When people are deploying and managing their serverless applications that they have figured out how to architect and they figured out how to refactor them, how does the day-to-day usage of their serverless experience, how does that go, like monitoring and testing and deployment? How does the overall experience of operating a serverless application work? Well, I'll start with the dev cycle. So what I primarily use in my dev cycle is SAM Local. So SAM Local basically just spins up a co- like Docker containers that have an API gateway local Lambda and and all this other stuff. And it's basically like running Lambda, but locally. And that's kind of where I start. And then it comes time to deploy. And I, I think you kind of have this continuous integration model, which is you create a code pipeline or a, a code deploy scenario where you're saying, hey, I want you to upload this Lambda function or this artifact into Lambda, and I want you to deploy this API. And you can do all of that through CloudFormation. You can do it through, you know, Terraform, wh- whatever kind of floats your boat, whatever you have the most expertise with already. If you don't have any expertise already built up, I would strongly suggest just focusing on CloudFormation and SAM. And then if you if you don't feel like setting up all of that infrastructure and everything to start with, then you can just go over to CodeStar and it'll spin it all up for you. So CodeStar, you go in and you say, I want a Ruby on Rails app or I want a... Uh, uh, a Flask app deployed on Lambda, and it'll take care of it all for you. And it'll spin up the the, the Git endpoints. So you you know every Git push you do, it'll run a set of tests. It'll if it, those tests pass, it will deploy all that good stuff. Then when it comes to the monitoring section, one of the things that I really like to do for my various applications is using AWS X-Ray. So X-Ray is kind of a type of instrumentation 
And what it allows you to do is get a service map of all of the different kinds of things that are all, all the different connections in your system. So serverless applications, serverless microservices in particular, kind of differ from these, these monolithic apps in that, you know, you may think that your service graph is relatively simple, but when you look at it, uh, you realize you have data coming from tons of different places, tons of different clients, and then going out to tons of different places as well. And if you have a trace ID coming in with these requests, what you can do is you can actually propagate that trace ID through to all the other places where this data is flowing, and you can generate this very pretty service map, and then you can visually alert on that service map when something goes wrong. Oh, our request getting throttled by DynamoDB. Maybe I need to, to turn on auto-scaling, or maybe I need to increase my read, read capacity units. Are my requests to recognition, which is this you know, uh, computer vision API that we have, or my request to recognition getting throttled? Oh, maybe I need to open a support ticket to, to get more limit. Or maybe I need to figure out why we're resubmitting the same thing every time. Maybe hashing is broken. The, there's this company called Skyscanner that was using X-Ray to alert, not really alert, but at least to, to instrument and monitor their system. And they realized, you know, they had this one call that was taking a lot longer than they were expecting. And when they looked and kind of dove deep on what it was doing, it turns out they were reading from the cache every time. And that was, you know, it was always a cache miss. And then when they looked into their code, they realized, huh, we forgot to set the cache after we went to the database to grab the, the info. And that was something that they actually found in production with X-Ray. And it only took them two or three minutes uh, of kind of looking through their metrics. And they had that instrumentation available to them. And it, it'll break it down by individual call. So you can see, like, each call you're making, this is what's happening. This is the latency for it. And then beyond that kind of code and instrumentation, you have the classic kind of CloudWatch model. So you, you have your logs, and you know your logs are going out to, to S3, and you can set up various alerts on those for, for 500s or, or you know, whatever your, your traditional log alerting mechanism is. But then you also have the ability to create these custom dashboards. And what I tell customers to do with the custom dashboards are rather than focusing on, on technical components, Focus on some like business deliverables. To focus on some technically or programmatically confirmable business deliverable, and if that goes outside of a well-defined range, then alert and try to find some action that you can. So, so the business metrics you you alert a human on, and then all of the other metrics, you know, something breaking, something, a service not being available. Those are metrics that you alert on, but the alert should go to something that can take a programmatic action to resolve it. So you, you want to alert humans for, for business problems, but if it's a problem that can be technically solved, you want to try and solve it with, you know, I, I say a Lambda function, but you, know, you want to try and solve it through some other means. That's kind of my philosophy, and it, it works well a lot of the time, but there are also a lot of complications when you're building that kind of that level of alerting like it's it's it takes a little bit of time investment and it takes some some familiarity with your system that not everybody has i know we're kind of up against time but you talked a little bit about machine learning and and places where building a model or working with a model may not exactly make sense in the context of serverless architecture but are there any Use use cases that you've seen where people are successfully using functions as a service in conjunction with a 
complicated machine learning pipeline? Sure. So I don't know if I can talk about the customer, but I, I will kind of explain in vaguer terms their use case. So running a model on Lambda is totally doable. Plenty of people do that. Uh, and in fact, I think we have our own fork of MXNet. It's like, like a model that you have trained and deployed. Right. You deploy it to a function as a service, so people are just making stateless calls to that model. Right, exactly. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty common. I, I see it very often. But this other company kind of wanted to take each input that they had and, and use it to reinforce their existing model. So they had a, an API gateway that would invoke a Lambda, which would immediately invoke another Lambda that had their, their call out to push the, the input into their model. And then they would, you know, they would invoke that asynchronously. And then they would have their, their original Lambda just return whatever the existing model had. And then they had a Lambda that would run every few hours and it would say, hey, start retraining this model. And it would trigger some instance that would launch, download all the new data, start retraining the model, and then push that model live again. And then they would, all the Lambdas would start pulling down that new model. But then in order to, to refresh the Lambdas, they would... They would like update function configuration and then change environment variables or something just to make sure that they were getting a fresh container. Okay, so final topic I, I just wanted to ask you. This is not very related to, to AWS Lambda, but uh, you used to work at SpaceX. You've also worked at NASA. And Bezos, Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, he talks about his goal with Blue Origin, his space company, to build kind of like an AWS for space travel, like basically a platform where random hackers could build their space companies without too much upfront investment. Like if I want to build a space transport company, I can spin it up using, you know, Blue Origins, whatever, back-end infrastructure. It's kind of a bright future. It's pretty exciting do you have any perspective for how far off that is or like what our trajectory to getting to that bright future will look like? I think that particular future is is pretty far away. One of the one of the downsides that I found while I was working in the space industry is that it moves pretty slowly. That's sometimes an advantage. So so Jeff Bezos has the saying where where slow is fast. And I like that to some degree, but as a super ADD technologist, it's also really hard to be on the same project for four years and then, you know, it still hasn't launched. So I, I worked on the Orion project way back in the day and nothing that I worked on has made it into space yet. And it's many years later. And then at SpaceX, what I liked about it was stuff that I was working on one day might be on a rocket, you know, 10 minutes later. And so I think Blue Origin and SpaceX both have this idea of making that cycle of iteration much faster. But when you're dealing with chemical propellants, there's a lot of danger. You know, stuff can go wrong. And especially if you're carrying people, people can get hurt. And it's important to make sure that cycle of iteration is as safe as possible. And I think those components balancing out and moving forward, getting all that kind of back-end infrastructure that you talk about, 
stable enough that you know it's as easy as taking a commercial air flight. I think that will take a while. You know, the the commercial air industry took a while to get to the point that it's at today, and it still is kind of cumbersome and frustrating. So I I think there'll there'll be a even longer kind of spin up for the space industry. All right. Maybe that wasn't very hopeful. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. I prefer realism to baseless idealism. So, thank you. It's a good good note to end on. Well, Randall, um, I appreciate you making the time, despite the fact that you're, you know, you're just on the on the tail end of uh, an overseas flight. You're about to go give a talk at a conference. I, I really appreciate you taking the time, and I, you know, I hope we we'll talk again soon. Yeah. Thanks a lot for having me. I, I appreciate it. I uh, hope. Uh... Hope your other guests are, are awesome too. Wow.